Goal for all of us, less jealousy, more joy. But we're going to see that in our text tonight. That's what's going to happen to Joseph's brothers. So Genesis 43, verse 1, here's what it says. Now the famine was still severe in the land. Remember, they already came and got food once. So now that we're here in the famine, it's still lasting. Remember, Joseph's dream, he told Pharaoh it's going to last seven years. So verse 2 tells us when they'd eaten all the grain, that would be on from the first trip they had brought back from Egypt, their father said, Go back and buy us a little more food. Now, most Bible scholars think, by the way, that first trip, the one we talked about a couple of weeks ago, it likely was taken the very first year of the famine. So we don't know exactly how long it's been until this trip happens, but it's, it's been a while, but all the food is now gone. But Joseph, because he had the dream, he knew it was going to last seven years. His brothers likely did not know that. They thought probably that first batch of food might do it. But clearly it didn't. And their father, Jacob, Israel, I'll probably use both names interchangeable tonight. Um, he was probably hoping and praying his sons would never have to go back down to Egypt. And if you remember why, he did not want his youngest son, Benjamin, going down there. But now they're almost in desperate straits again. They're out of food. They're hungry. There's nothing to do but go back to Egypt. But look what his sons, Judah, says in verse 3. Judah says, the man, the man. It's kind of funny to me how they call Joseph the man. That's kind of, you know, sometimes it's probably not a very good term, but some people call the police the man. The man is warned. Look what it says. The man warned us solemnly, you will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. And he's the man because he's, in the, he's the man in charge of the whole country unless Pharaoh himself is in the room. But notice Judah, though. He's stepping up. He's acting like a leader. He's kind of telling his father, like, hey, Dad, don't forget, that man, the man, said we can't come back without Benjamin. And he's also respecting Joseph's authority because he says we can't even go back down there. He was pretty clear, Dad. I heard him, and he, he told us, do not come back without your brother which made me think of a couple of verses out of Romans. Um, and these are great verses to look at, by the way. Let's look at them on screen. Look what it says in verse 1. Romans 13, it says, Let everyone, that's all of us, we're everyone, be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. It's so important, God repeats himself in this verse. Then the next verse says, consequently, if you don't submit to authority, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And here's the key. Those that do so bring judgment on themselves. And Christians can struggle with this one. We all kind of do because we look at the government sometime, no matter what country you're living in, this one, overseas, wherever, and you say, that government is messed up. I'm not going to submit to them. I'm not going to pay my taxes, things like You get crazy ideas. No, we don't do that, do we? We all pay our taxes, I hope, because the government requires it. Jesus, if you remember the story, I don't have time to teach it, but when they were asking, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, give me a coin. Whose picture's on that coin? Caesar. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's. Give to God's what's God's. So we never go against God's commands but our government doesn't really tell us to, for the most part. Now, they may be doing stuff we don't agree with that we know is not in line with God's commands. 
But long as we don't partake in that or do that ourselves, we're still required by that verse to submit to who God put in authority. And then you have to also think about it, by the way, who, who was in charge as Paul wrote Romans? It was a Caesar, but I'll help you out. It was Nero. Nero was probably the worst or one of the worst Caesars there was. He was known, he's the guy, if you remember the story, he would take Christians, dip them in tar, put them on a spear or a big pole, and light them on fire like a candle. Paul is saying, submit to that kind of authority. Just don't do that stuff yourself. So does that make sense? We can submit without being part of ungodly stuff. That's where we would draw the line. We don't do ungodly things, even if our government told us to. But for the most part, they don't. So if they want to do things we don't agree with, we can say it's not right, we can disagree, but I can't refuse to pay my taxes because I don't agree with their decisions. That's where it gets kind of, you know, we're, we're over the line on that one. Anyway, back to our text, verse 4. If you will send our brother, this is Judah still talking, if you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you, really for us. But, look what he says in verse 5. He puts it, but if you will not send him, we're not going down there. So he's really, in a way, challenging his dad's authority because he, he, he believes that Joseph's authority in Egypt overrules what his, his dad has authority of their household. But the dad is saying, go to Egypt, get that food. And he even explains himself, if I, if I would keep reading, he says, because the man said to us, you will not see my face again unless your brother's with you. So he's just trying to tell his dad, we've got to do what that man said. We can't go down there under false pretenses. We can't go down there empty-handed without Benjamin. That was critical, and he made it crystal clear to us, Dad, you've got to let Benjamin go, is, is kind of what he's saying. Look at Israel or Jacob's response in verse 6. Why did you bring this trouble on me? He kind of sees it as it's his problem, his trouble. You boys did this to me is almost what he seems to be saying. Why would you tell that man, the man, you had another brother? He's kind of blaming his sons now for messing his life up almost. Remember how a few weeks ago he was in this woe is me, everything's terrible, I'm, I'm miserable, but I pointed out he was rich, he was wealthy, he was healthy had all this, you know, possessions and healthy sons. But the way he's reading and saying this, he says, I have all this trouble. You've brought it on me. He's not responding to the challenge of trouble very well, is what I would like to point out. So if you're taking notes, this is the first thing you can write. It's our first main point. How any of us, someone, anyone, responds to trouble or a trial, it's a great way for us to sort of examine their character. And also, I would add, it's a great way for others to examine our character by how we do this. And then I added on the end of there, let's be more like Joseph, less like Jacob. Jacob is kind of self-centered. That's why, I remember, he didn't get the name Israel for a long time. In this chapter, he's, he's called Israel mostly. But Joseph never wavered in trials, never changed his faith, never lost hope. He never went through the woe is me. And he, he really had way more reason to than, than Jacob, his father, does. So as we read this, just think, we want to be more like Joseph, less like Jacob. 
Back to verse 7. Here's what, here's what the brothers now say. Because his dad just said, why did you tell him we had another brother? Look what they say. The man, again, questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Because they don't know it, but that is their family. And Joseph wants to know details. He asked us, is your father still living? Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions because, Dad, he was in authority. That's my addition. How were we to know he would say, bring your brother down? Well, they really didn't know. I mean, they're being honest. They're just saying, Dad, this guy asked a bunch of tough questions about our family, and we were kind of trapped into honoring him because he was in charge. We weren't trying to give up all your secrets, Dad. It just sort of happened because of his questions. So now Israel, I think, is going to see they have a point. So in verse 8 it says, Then Judah said to his father, Send the boy along with me, and we'll go at once, so that you and our children may live. Because they're starving. Remember, this is a famine. So they'll live and not die. Now, if you look in different translations, some of your translations might say, Send the boy. I'm reading that in NIV. Some translations say the young man, because we really don't know exactly how old Benjamin is, but a lot of Bible scholars have spent a lot of time trying to figure this out, and they really couldn't figure it out. I'll just help you out. He's somewhere between a teenager or maybe mid-20s at the oldest. Either way, and I think I said this about two weeks ago, the last time Joseph saw him, he was a child, an almost you know, a toddler. So we don't really know how old the boy is, and it doesn't really matter. What really matters is Joseph wants to see his brother, and later we'll see he does. Verse 9, look what Judah keeps saying. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I don't bring him back to you and set him here before you in front of your very eyes, I will bear the blame before you all of my life. This is Judah talking. Now let's revisit some of Judah's history. Judah, if you remember the story, he was the one that came up with the idea to sell Joseph. He was in the pit, and remember Judah said, we want to get rid of him, but we can kind of make some profit. Let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders, and they did. That was Judah's idea. So that was kind of Judah making a bad decision. Then about a month ago in here, we taught the story where, remember Judah, his son died, and he was supposed to provide another son to um, the widow, which is Tamar. He didn't do it, and then Tamar pretended to be a temple prostitute. He sleeps with her on the side of the road, loses his kind of belongings. That was Judah too. So look how far Judah's come. Those two dumb decisions. Now he's saying, Dad, if you'll let me take Benjamin I will protect him with my own life, and I will promise to the best of my ability getting back to you. And if somehow I fail, you can judge me and do whatever you want the rest of my life. So Judah has come a long way. He has changed, it appears anyway. And by the way, where did Jesus ascend from? The Lion of Judah. So Judah's looking more like Judah in Scripture this week. Verse 10. Now he's going to kind of dig back at dad a little bit for being so hesitant. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. He's kind of saying, dad, you're slowing us down. If you weren't all conservative, we could have been twice back and forth. 
He's decided on a course of action. He's determined to sort of make dad agree to it, which is we got to bring Benjamin. Let's go. Quit delaying. Let's move. And he's sticking to his guns on this decision. So in verse 11, see what dad says. Then their father Israel said to them, if it must be, and the man did say it must be, by the way, then do this. Put some of the best products of our land, the land, in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm, which would be like ointment, a little honey, some spices, and myrrh, some pistachio nuts, and almonds. Now, as I read this, I was thinking when I studied, well, I thought it was a famine. Then I was thinking, well, it can be both. And here's why I think I decided this. All the things listed here almost in my house, what we would call condiments. Maybe the pistachio nuts are kind of good. But... They're not what you would live on day-to-day meal. You wouldn't make a meal out of pistachio nuts unless you're a kid. They need grain, not condiments. So the land they're in, it's barren of really staple foods, grain and stuff that they can make a meal from. These are more what I would call condiments. So Israel is saying, take some of our good produce, our condiments, and trade them and buy this grain, and maybe he'll be pleased enough to let... He's trying to make sure Benjamin comes back. Bring him a gift. I want to overcompensate so Benjamin comes home. Then look what he says in verse 12. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back in the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps they made a mistake. Perhaps it was a mistake when they put it there is what he means. So Israel, Jacob, is being very honest. He's apparently changed too, some at least. Because two weeks ago, if you were here, I said Joseph gave the brothers a test when he hid that silver. He wanted to see two things. What would they do with that silver? In other words, would they keep it? Would they spend it? Would they enjoy it? But more importantly, how would they feel about having it? Because they know they don't deserve it. They know they should have paid that money to Egypt. When they find it, they could do the wrong thing and keep it, or they could just be excited that we kind of got this windfall of free money. But we'll see tonight, that's not how they feel at all. This week, we're going to see, as we figure out the questions, uh, how that question got answered, they don't want the money, their dad doesn't want the money, they're making plans to take it back. And they really, as you read the text, it it sounds like they feel guilty, very guilty for having it. And they call it, he just called it, it's a mistake. We don't deserve this. Which is our next thing to write down tonight for us. How does that apply to us? Well, you know, we can sometimes get a windfall of extra money too, can't we? It's tax time before we know it around the corner. Some people willingly fudge their taxes trying to artificially get a windfall. But, you know, I've seen on the news some people get a large sum in their account on accident or maybe their tax return comes back very large on accident. If any wealth falls in our laps, because we're believers, we're Christians, we're called to be different, aren't we? And we know that we know that we know, like these brothers do, we know that money's not ours we got to give it back because even if the government doesn't know it, even if this mystery bank that made the clerical error that put a million dollars in my account on accident, even if they don't know they did it, I know that it's not mine. Don't don't you know when you get money that's not yours? Or another thing that could happen, you know, we've all maybe imagined what would I do if I found this 
bank trucks. I mean, you read the news, a door breaks open, a big giant sack of money falls on the highway. Some people keep it. It's in the news sometime. Should we do that? No, because who's really watching? No matter if anybody on earth is watching, our Heavenly Father's watching, and it may be God may have broke that door open on purpose to test me. What is Dave going to do with that giant sack of money I'm going to put on the side of the road today? Give it back. It's not worth it. Um, God knows. He knows our heart. He knows we might for a second wish we had it because I could pay off my mortgage. I could get a new car. I could send my kids to college. But Think about how guilty you would feel like these brothers are down the road. You would know that's not the right thing, and you would just eat you alive the rest of your life if, if you... The Holy Spirit would convict you because he's in you if you're a believer, and he would give you no peace about that until you somehow paid it back and fixed it. And, and here's what we know by Scripture, by tonight, and we know it by personal experience too. I know it well. When you make mistakes... It's way harder to fix them after you make them than before you commit them, isn't it? It's easier just to let that money sit on the side of the road and drive on by. Let it go. Back to the text, verse 13. So now what's Israel going to tell them? Take your brother also, in other words, take, take your youngest brother and go back to the man at once because they're probably getting hungry. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother, which was Simeon. Remember, Simeon's been held in ransom. Let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. Back to me is what he really wants. As for me, here's kind of Israel being Jacob again. If I'm bereaved, then I'm bereaved. He's putting an if, in other words, if I end up brokenhearted because somehow Benjamin dies or Simeon gets not let go, he's given in to let Benjamin travel, but he's kind of saying, if I end up heartbroken, well, so be it. He's almost thinking the worst, in a way, is my point. He doesn't seem to have a lot of trust in the Lord to make it happen in a way, I mean, God's already come through for this family so many times in our, our book of Genesis. He doesn't have much faith at all, if any. And, and here's why I, I personally think, and I don't want to be too harsh because we can all sometimes not have great faith, but contrast Israel or Jacob, however you want to think of him, with Isaac. Isaac. And really, his father. What, what was his father Abraham told to do? Take your only son sacrifice him, tie him on this altar, and stab him and kill him, your only son. And he had, remember, waited for a son forever. They were childless. He never hesitated. And even Isaac in that story, I'll paraphrase it, asked him, Dad, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? What did Abraham say? God will provide. He trusted God even to provide a way out of this death of his only son, including drawing the knife back to, to almost commit it. And then finally God says, there's a ram in the bush. Go get it. I was just testing to see if you'd really go through with this. And my point is, don't you think that story would have been a past? They didn't have any paper, any newspaper, any cell phone, of course. That verbal story would have been told around every campfire, every family gathering. 
Remember when God came through and brought that ram out of the bushes right before you killed Isaac? Jacob would have known that story, but he doesn't seem to think it applies to him. He's not trusting God like Abraham. He, he really had the principles. He didn't have the verse I'm about to put up, but I think he did have the principle that God will fix, no matter how terrible it looks, it's something we should remember too, by the way, no matter how bad our trial, our dilemma, our mess looks, God will provide a way out. Let's look at a verse out of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31. It's verse 6. It says, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. And this is about an army that was kind of bigger than Israel at the time. Don't be terrified because of them, because the Lord your God goes with you. The Lord is going to go with them on this trip to Egypt. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. That's probably on a lot of our refrigerators, if I'm not mistaken. But do we believe it? Do, do we live it? Do we act like it when we see no way out in our own life? Or do we kind of become more like a Jacob? So remember our other point? Let's be more like Joseph, less like Jacob. Back to our text, verse 15. So the men took the gifts, all the sons, they pack up all these gifts, they, they take double the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt because they're likely hungry, not just them though, they're trying to get their wives and children food. That's their main motivation, I think. And they presented themselves to Joseph. Made me wonder as I read just that one little verse, wonder what they talked about on that trip. Do you think they talked about what possibly, how's this going to work? How do we explain this silver? Because remember, the last time they left, they were way down the road before they found, they all got all the way home almost. Only one brother found silver. Then they all found it as they unpacked at the house. That's the last time they saw the man. So they're probably wondering, oh my gosh, we got to come up with a story. Let's just tell the truth and just pray that the Lord would protect us. And we don't know, by the way, how long this journey was. Um, it's about 150 miles, but they would have been traveling by camel or, or maybe walking. We don't really know. It would have been at least, even on camel, a few days. And if they walked, probably even longer. Verse 16 tells us more what happens. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, you know he's excited when he sees him. He said to the steward of his house, take Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took them into Joseph's house. So how did Joseph know they would come back? Well, we, we were told already in the first part of Genesis, remember Joseph had a gift of divination or he could interpret dreams. He, he was very knowledgeable. He was smart. And Pharaoh trusted him enough to put him over all of his storehouses. Well, Joseph would have known exactly how much grain got given to his brothers. And so, in my opinion anyway, if he was a very smart man and a farmer, he would have known ballpark how long that grain would have lasted. So I think because he trusted God, he knows they're coming back, and he knows probably ballpark about when the food would run out. So I think he likely estimated and came up with a, a ballpark. Okay, they'll be back someday on this month. At least, I bet he had it down to the month in my mind. Doesn't really matter, but I think what, what is more important though, Joseph was content to patiently wait as God brought his brothers back due to hunger because he knew it would happen. Patiently waited on them to come to him. 
And as we've been teaching about Joseph, you know, I've given us quite a few now comparisons of how Joseph is similar. Not, he's not Jesus. He's similar to. Think how long Jesus patiently waited on us. Did many of us, now there's a few in this room, I'm sure, when you were a child, you heard the gospel, you went running to Jesus. Most of us, like me, waited a lot longer, you were hard-headed. What did Jesus do? Patiently waited because he knew we would come. And you did. The proof is you're now saved. And if you're not saved, you can come to Jesus tonight at the end of the service. We'll give you a chance to do that. So another similarity, Jesus patiently waited, Joseph patiently waited on his brothers. And just as Joseph expected, here they are now back for more grain. And they brought Benjamin just as he requested. So do they feel blessed by getting this invitation to Joseph's house? In other words, they don't really know what's happening. They think they're going to make a, probably a quick transaction. We'll explain this silver. We'll get a new load of grain. We'll pay double. We'll fix all the bill. We'll hit the road and go feed our family. Now they've been brought to his house. They don't feel blessed at all, and you'll see as I read verse 18 why I think that. Look what they, verse 18 says, how they felt. Now the men, this is all the brothers, they were frightened when they were taken to his house, and here's what they thought. We were brought here because of the silver that was put back in our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us. He wants to overpower us. He wants to seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. I guess they were valuable donkeys, you know. In our world, it would be, he wants to take my Corvette. In their world, it was, he's going to take my best donkey. But they're imagining the worst. Likely, Jacob rubbed off on them a little because they're doing a Jacob right here. In other words, they don't feel blessed at all. They're suspicious. They don't trust the man. It all seems too good to be true. Let's keep reading verse 19. Let's see how it ends. So they went up to Joseph's steward, this, this chief servant of Joseph's, who invited them to come eat. And they spoke to him at the entrance. To, they don't even go in the house yet. They said, we beg your pardon, our Lord. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks, and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we've brought it all back. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver, put our silver back in our sacks. So they're, feel, they're fearful, they're afraid, they think he's up to no good. So they're going to sort of confess, because remember, Joseph, the last time they were in town, called them spies, he was accusing them. In their mind, if, if he thought we were spies last time, He's definitely going to think we're thieves because we, we have the silver. We don't know how it happened, but we have it. That's undeniable. We better quickly, quickly explain this before they even ask us anything. And, and let's confess that we have this because we don't want it. They clearly have changed. They're trying to make sure they tell the truth before any you know, miscommunication happens. But they're afraid. They're not really afraid of God. They're afraid of Joseph because he's in charge. And this next point doesn't really apply exactly, but I still think it's worth mentioning. We are told all through Scripture to fear God, but it's a healthy fear. It's an awe, a respect. We, we love Him. 
but we fear him because he spoke creation into existence, created the universe, created us. But we should never fear him and fear his mistreatment because he's not a mistreating God. He's not a mean God like maybe some of us grew up thinking in the denomination. If we fear God like that, it's unhealthy. And, and more than that, it's unwarranted. God loves us. He wants to bless us. And the reason I said it doesn't exactly apply, they are more fearing Joseph, but I think it's a great moment for us to make sure we never think of God as going to punish us um, unjustly. He may punish us someday at the end time judgment, but we would deserve it. He never punishes anybody undeservedly. Anybody that ever gets punished in Scripture or even in end times in Revelation, it'll be because they wouldn't accept his son. It's because they were unbelievers. We will be judged more for what we did in his name and how we proclaimed the gospel. We're saved, we're believers, but we'll get a different judgment on what did you do with the gifts I gave you? Did you use the talents? Did you use my gifts I gave you all? Did you serve me? Did you, did you support my work here on earth? Did you share the gospel? But we don't fear him in an unhealthy way or un, especially unwarranted way because don't never forget, God loved us so much, he sent Jesus to pay for something he never know. We owed it, not Jesus. That's a great testimony to how much God loves us. Verse 23, Joseph's going to kind of, I mean, not Joseph, the servant's going to intervene. It's all right, the servant said. Don't be afraid. Look who he gives credit to. This is a, we don't even know he's an Egyptian servant. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brings Simeon out to them. So makes me wonder as I read these verses um, as I was studying, now what are they thinking? They just had these horrible thoughts. This man's going to enslave us. He wants to hurt us. He wants to steal my donkey. Now what are they thinking? Is God, and this, this man just said God is blessing us. Is God really doing this? Is he showing us mercy? Is he, he's not trying to enslave us at all. He's trying to give us stuff. Our brother, as he comes out, seems to be in perfect health. He looks almost like he's been eating well, better than we have. We've been back in the famine. He's been eating this great court food. And best of all, it looks like we're really welcome here. He's going to feed us and have a banquet, a feast for us. In a way, that's a picture of Christianity. We think when we're unbelievers, if we become Christians, it's going to be like slavery. Somehow we're going to lose all our freedom. You ever think that when you were an unbeliever? Like all these things I have to do, I'm going to give up all my fun. Pastor Dave talked about it on the weekend not long ago. That's what he thought when he was in college. He would give up all his fun lifestyle. Little did he and we all know the real fun is being a Christian, isn't it? Amen. But God doesn't promise us perfect health, but he does promise us a perfect healthy body in heaven someday. We may not be perfectly healthy down here, but just like Simeon seems to be really healthy, we will have that heavenly perfect body with no pain, no suffering, no glasses, no hearing aids, no nothing. And best of all, just like these brothers, we'll be welcome at the, the ruler's table, not just crashing the party like they think they're doing. We're going to be welcome guests at God's banquet. 
the marriage supper of the Lamb someday in end times. Another picture of how this story kind of mimics Christianity. Verse 24. The steward took the men into Joseph's house. He gave them water to wash their feet, provided fodder for their donkeys. So he's not stealing the donkey, he's feeding the donkey. They prepared their gifts, which was those pistachios, the honey, and the balm. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon because they had heard they were supposed to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented him the gifts they brought in the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. Here's another similarity to Joseph and Jesus. They don't know this is Joseph yet, so they're going to receive this, this man. They call him the man. The man's gift of kindness, love, forgiveness for having that silver before they ever really know him. They don't really know who he is yet. All they know is he's the man. Well, think about us. We receive Jesus' love, kindness, and mercy before we ever really knew him. I mean, we met him. We heard the gospel. We got convicted by the Holy Spirit. But you really don't get that personal relationship. You're starting it at salvation. But that comes after a lot of prayer, quiet time, meditation on the word, reading your Bible, getting in small groups, things like that, Christian-type stuff. But we received Jesus' love before we really knew him, just like these brothers are receiving Joseph's love before they really knew him. Look what Joseph does in 27. He asked them how they were on this trip. Probably, how, How's the trip? How, how was it, guys? Are you healthy? Are you tired? Are you exhausted? And then he said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? Because he probably really wants to know if his dad's still alive because he wants to see him someday. They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down twice now and prostrated themselves before him. But they're probably thinking once again, I'll try to almost imagine, what are they thinking now? Why is this guy keep asking about our family? Why does he keep doing this? They're not quite suspicious yet, but they're going to be when something else happens. But it, I'm sure by now it seems unusual to them. Verse 29 says, Then Joseph, he looked around. He saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son. And I made the case a few weeks ago, this is his full brother, because all the rest of them are half-brothers. But, you know, back then they all had different moms and things like that. Same dad, different moms. We know that story, you know, Rachel, Leah, the servants, Bilhah, etc. Benjamin is his full biological brother from Rachel. So he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And then he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And he was probably overcome because the very next verse says, deeply moved at the sight of his brother. Because remember, he probably hadn't seen him since he was a toddler. Now he's either a teenager or mid-twenties. Deeply moved at the sight, he hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He wants to cry in private because he's not exactly ready to reveal who he is yet. He went into his private room and he wept there. He can hardly contain himself and he didn't want to break down in front of his brother's. So verse 31 says, after he washed his face, he came out, and now he's under control. He controlled himself and said, serve the food. They served him by himself, don't miss that, by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Then it kind of tells us why. 
because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. And this is kind of a sad part. It's just buried in here, but it's really sad to me that we read this because here's what it really shows. Segregation, separation, and really racism. They don't see themselves, the Egyptians, as equals to those dirty Hebrews. And then little do they know, Joseph is one of them, but they think he's almost second to God. He's a little G God in a way because Pharaoh is the little G God. And when Pharaoh's gone, remember Joseph has on his signet ring, has his staff. So he eats all by himself. Poor Joseph probably would love to go sit with his brothers, but he can't because of traditions, segregation. The Egyptians are all over here, and these unclean Hebrew brothers are all over there. So they're all in one big room, but they can't even talk. It's a picture of how ugly, I think, segregation racism is. But I think they're getting suspicious, um, because if we read verse 33, we'll see why. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest. In other words, from youngest to oldest. They looked at each other in astonishment as, as that happened, because they're wondering, how does the man know how to do this? How does he know who's born first? Because he's your brother, that's why. I'm going to read the first half of 34 and save the second half for a second. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, that's where all the food would have been deposited, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they're kind of suspicious. How would this strange man that asked too many questions know how to seat us in the perfect birth order? But don't miss the test I just read. That's why I only read half that verse. Joseph had already told the servants, give Benjamin five times as much as the rest of them. This is Joseph's test. Because remember, he's not fully convinced yet his brothers have changed. He remembers the brothers that threw him in the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites. He wants to see their reaction because he's right in the room. He wants to look in their faces. How are they going to react to this favoritism? To this younger brother. Because remember, what did they do to him? He was the youngest brother. He was the favorite. Benjamin is now the youngest, and he's also dad's new favorite. How are they going to react when I overbless him and not them? And that whole mess, if you think about the whole mess in the Joseph story, the pit started because of favoritism and the, how the brothers resented that. So he wants to see if they still have it. And really, I would say, Joseph's test is really God's test. God is checking the brothers' hearts. He's God. He already knows, but I think he wants Joseph to see their heart, to see if they've really changed. But how does that apply to us? Because this is a great story, but so what? What does that mean for me and you? How do we respond, me included, when somebody gets blessed that we think, hey, why is that guy or that girl getting five times the blessing I'm getting? Lord, I'm doing all this work for you. I'm in the, all these ministries at church. I'm volunteering. I'm serving. But I barely got two nickels to rub together, and those people seem to be getting everything. Or maybe that person's getting all these opportunities that I'm not. They seem to be highly favored by leadership, and I'm just like this nobody. How do we respond when that happens? Do we respond like God wants us to, or do we more 
act like those old brothers back in the pit days. The brothers in this case are going to respond well. But let me tie it to a question Jesus got asked. Remember when Jesus got asked, Lord, what is, what's the greatest commands? What's the greatest command? And he answered kind of with two. Love God, remember, I'll paraphrase him, and love people. And what he really said was love your neighbor as yourself. Well, here's, here's the, the key here, I think. If I get upset and angry and I grumble and mumble and envious when one of you gets favored or gets something that maybe I think I should deserve, am I loving my neighbor as myself? Because clearly I want it, so there's the myself part. If I'm upset that one of you or anybody I know, my friend that works here, another pastor, gets a blessing, if I'm upset about it and grumbling and mumbling, why not me, Lord? I'm really not doing very well on that second command Jesus gave us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Because if I want it for myself, I should be happy that you got it. That's the true where the rubber meets the road of that command, I think. It's a hard one if you think about it. Be happy when other people get the blessing even that maybe we wish we had, which is our last main point if we're taking notes. As Christians, as Christ followers, if we're going to obey that command, we should be happy when others receive God's blessing, not jealous. And if we're not, it's okay to have a twinge because we do have that sin nature, but we got to quickly say we're so happy for our Christian brother or sister. God will bless me later. I trust him to make my life great no matter if I get that thing or not that they got I wanted. If we don't have not just on the outside either, it's our heart. God knows our heart, remember? If our heart is not happy when our brother and sister gets blessed, we're really failing to love our neighbors as ourselves. Last verse, it's really the last half of 34. I'm going to reread the Benjamin part. Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's, so look what the brothers did. They feasted and drank freely with him. So far as we can tell, based on that short little verse, no envy, no jealousy, no questioning, why not me, no complaining. They don't try to throw him in a pit, or probably couldn't because they're in Joseph's house. All they seem to be is joyful because it says they feasted and drank free. They could have been sullen, angry, and like sit over in the corner and sulked about it. That's where the title tonight came from, from jealousy to joyful. It's a great model for us, isn't it? From jealousy to joyful. Well, we're going to close in prayer, but what, like I said a while ago, if you don't know Jesus yet, I'm going to pray us out in a second, but come down here, talk to me, let's, let's talk about it. Let's, let's talk about you getting saved and committing your life to Jesus before you leave here tonight. Because Scripture says today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, today. But in two weeks, remember next week is the Christmas pageant. In two weeks, Pastor Rick Hammond is going to teach chapter 44. And we're going to see Joseph give his brothers one last test. I think he's pretty convinced on this one. But he wants to make really sure, so he's going to give them one last test. Let me pray as we leave. Lord, tonight, thank you for just showing us, Lord, um, to be more like Joseph and less like Jacob. 
But Lord, we're going to mess up. We need your help, so forgive us when we do make mistakes. Help us realize that um, that's not our identity. Our identity is in you, Lord, in Christ. So Lord, help us to obey you. Help us to please you. Help us to not have any jealousy or rivalry or bitterness, even when our friends get a blessing that maybe we, we won't. But Lord, um, we're just imperfect people and we need your help. Help us, Jesus, be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, Amen. Amen. See you this weekend.